in the last decade, the ability to have genetic targeting of cell types in mice and to be able to manipulate specific cell types, work out their connectivity, has really provided huge insights into the way the brain works. And there's going to come a day, it might be 30 years or 50 years from now, where there will be gene therapy in the human brain targeting cell types and manipulating circuits that are defective in, in brain disorders. The human brain is the most complex structure in the known universe, and we are in the middle of a scientific revolution to understand its inner workings. Join us for a conversation with world-renowned neuroscientists as they visit Rochester. I am Dr. John Fox, director of the Del Monte Institute for Neuroscience at the University of Rochester, and you are listening to Neuroscience Perspectives. So Ed Calvary, it's uh, we, we never met in no, person before this, yeah. but it's really, I mean, having read your papers over the years, it's really great to have you here in Rochester. And, uh, you know, wanted to introduce you to our community and, and ask you a few questions about your science and how you ended up where, you, where you're at in, in the world. Um, so so you're, you're at the Salk Institute, mm -hmm. uh, and have you spent your entire career on the um, West Coast? Well, my first faculty position for three years, I was in Colorado at the Health Sciences Center in Denver and then moved to in 1995 to Salk Institute, so it's been 24 years there now. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into your science. I actually, I, you know, of course, I was reading beforehand, trying to get ready uh, to to meet with you, and I, I got very struck by something that was on one of the sets of materials, and it was describing the brain as a veritable bowl of spaghetti, um, <laughs> and and so. So a lot of your work has been about untangling the mysteries mm -hmm. of the circuitry of the brain and that. And uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about how you think about brain circuitry and this mass of neurons and yeah. interconnectivity? Well, I mean, there are two levels of different ways you can entangle that. And the one that I think is the most tractable right now and where the field is really moving is cell types, right? Because um, even though it's a big tangle, um, if we can, you know, label one of those pieces of spaghetti and follow it, or it's maybe not just a big piece, pile of spaghetti, it's got some penne pasta and rigatoni and different kind of things in it, um, but you know, without having the ability to target and see that that's all in there and each of those is different, it's pretty clear to us now that cell types matter. Cell types, each cell type is connected in a different way, mediates brain function in different ways. And um, in the last decade, the ability to have genetic targeting of cell types in mice um, and to be able to manipulate specific cell types, work out their connectivity, has really provided huge insights into the way the brain works. And there's going to come a day, it might be 30 years or 50 years from now, where there will be gene therapy in the human brain targeting cell types and manipulating circuits that are defective in, in brain disorders. Is it the, the idea then that there, there may be disorders that are uh, allied to specific deficits in specific cell types. That's why yeah. we need to yeah, know Yeah, and there's, there's, there's evidence for, for that. So for example, post-mortem tissue from schizophrenic patients, there's a particular cell type called chandelier cells. They make a particular kind of synapse on pyramidal cell axon terminals. Beautiful chandelier-like axons. That's how they got their name from the old days when you Golgi labeling of neurons. Um, it turns out in schizophrenic patients, they have uh, fewer than normal number of these axon terminals on the um, pyramidal neurons. So that's just a clue that there might be something wrong there, but right. there now exist mouse lines that you can target gene expression to just the chandelier cells. Right. And you can inactivate and activate them and see what their role is in the function of a mouse brain. 
And within a couple of years, there will be ways to target chandelier cells in a monkey brain, which is much closer to a human brain and its function and where you can study higher level cognitive functions and manipulate them and look at them in that, you know, you know, context of, of something. And, so now, so now yeah. you're, ta you're talking about looking at these cells, and uh, of course, uh, people... As yeah, I'm saying looking in a figurative sense. Yeah, I know, yeah. right? So, we so do look at them. Exactly, but, yeah. and that's, in some ways, that's where your, your lab has really become famous around mm. that. So, so there are ways to stain these neurons, but you brought new technologies using a virus, right? Mm -hmm. A very famous virus to bear in terms of our ability to really paint these, paint these pictures. And you want to, would you want to talk about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Well, um, for many years, we wanted to have a way of, if all these cell types are mixed together and you want to untangle the connectivity, you'd like to know where are all the cells in the brain that connect to a particular cell type in a particular place that starts in a particular place in the brain. And um, back, um, I guess it's been about 2007 now, about 12 years ago, we first developed this method, working very closely with Ian Wickersham, who was a graduate student in the lab. Um, we modified rabies virus, which has natural abilities to spread very selectively only across connected neurons. Um, but it um, doesn't have a property where you'd inject it in the brain and it would only infect a cell type. And it doesn't have the property where it would spread one step and stop so you could unambiguously say those are the cells connected. It would just keep spreading. And in fact, in animals that are infected, like bats, they'll eventually change their behavior and they'll spread to other bats and they die. Um, but we modified the virus in ways that allowed us to target its infection to specific cell types and so that it would only spread one synaptic step and label the direct inputs to those cells. Then you can look across the entire brain and look at those. And you can even do functional studies. You have people here in Rochester that are taking advantage of this virus to express optogenetic constructs which allow you to turn those cells that are connected in specific ways on and off to look at their, their roles in function in the intact mm -hmm. brain. So, and yeah. 15 years ago, if somebody had said to you it would be possible to switch on and off cells with light that are you with know, transfected light. with the rabies virus, would you, would you have laughed at them uh, or did you see it coming? I mean, optogenetics has been around, um, you know, probably is it getting close to 15 years? Yeah, I'm not true. sure. Yeah. And we worked on other methods to inactivate that were chemical um, uh, because we did want to be able to target cell types in brains of animals like, like monkeys, we're only just now getting the ability to target cell types in monkeys very selectively. It's something we imagined 15 years ago. I think the first experiments that got us thinking about tracing connections in cell type specific ways were ones that used a different virus called PRV. Uh, it's uh, in the herpes family of viruses like chickenpox viruses and things like that. Um, and uh, Jeff Friedman and Lynn Enquist made a version of that that could um, label the, in the inputs to a specific cell type, but it kept spreading multiple synaptic contacts. And we actually worked with that for a couple of years trying to get a way to make it stop. Um, but all those things didn't work, and it was those failures that led us to the properties of rabies virus as one that we would be able to engineer in a way that would work. That was more than 15 years ago. They published that paper in 2001 yeah, showing right. that, that tracing. So the, all this work, it led to uh, quite an honor for you this, this just this past year, right? Where mm -hmm. it I believe you were inducted into the National Academy of mm -hmm. Sciences, yeah, which is our yeah. most prestigious scientific society. How did you, how did you find out? Who, did you um, get a phone call? Did they send well, you that, a letter? Well, that's how it usually works, apparently, yeah. is they, they have this thing of 
especially if you're on the West Coast and it's early in the morning. Um, it must have, well, to me early, I would sleep late, eight in the morning. But I actually found out from my daughter, <laughs> strangely, because I had my, I always silenced my cell phone when I go to bed and I'd gotten up and was in the shower and um, I didn't notice that people had called and left messages. And then I opened my computer to check traffic in the morning. I happened to look at my emails and see all these sort of congratulations messages. And I was like, oh, what's, what's that for, I wonder? Right. And then next thing I know, my phone's ringing and it's my daughter telling me. <laughs> so, Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So, and then, of course, I, I called and talked to, yeah. to the and I, to Tell us, how did so, it feel? So, Were you surprised? Well, uh, or was yeah, because, I mean, it's not something I was really on my radar thinking about. And, yeah. and uh, you know, I, they do have a meeting every year at a certain time. I didn't know this was the time when the meeting was happening and they would be doing this, this voting. Um, of course, you have a sense that, you know, you're being nominated because the people nominating you have to ask for materials. They, they can't tell you they're nominating you, but you can tell from the format of it. Right. Um, it's, it's a nice honor and uh, really mostly a reflection of all the, the stuff that people in my lab over the years so have done. So here you are, a National Academy member, but let's, let's go back in time and, and track, how, how, do, how do you end up as a National Academy member? Tell us about the academic trajectory. And when, mm -hmm. when did you figure out you wanted to be a neuroscientist? Was this something when you were yeah. 10 years of age yeah. And, yeah. Or, no, or was no. that a later? Well, I mean, I mean, I've always, even since when I was a kid, fascinated with how things work and sort of, you know, would take apart mechanical things, like to work on bikes and cars and mm -hmm. things like that, and like to build things, which helps a lot with neuroscience because you have to, um, especially longer ago, build all, all of your own things, but just really a fascination with how things work. But it wasn't until I was in college, I knew I was interested in biology and was dabbling with the idea of medical school. Um, but um, during my sophomore year in college is when I first started the, the first biology lectures, first years you take chemistry, physics, mm -hmm. math, um, and uh, learned about neurons and that they have this electrical activity and action potentials. These beautiful lectures that Corey Goodman um, gave, he was a, a assistant professor at Stanford at the time, that's like 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was when it just hit me, this is what makes me who I am. Everything about me and how, my, how I work and think and feel is because of these neurons in the brain and their activity together. How does that work? Right. And what would keep me, could be more fascinating? So I just started at that time um, signing up for every neuroscience class I could find and found a lab to work in with Jack McMahon and studied neuromuscular development and got interested in right. nervous system development. Yeah. Now, I happen to know you and I have something in common. I don't think you know this uh, mm -hmm. because uh, I, think, I think we both started out life as dumb jocks. Did you end up uh, as university? <laughs> I hope I wasn't dumb. I, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Stanford, Stanford has some, some academic standards, yeah, but I, I do <laughs> think they are a little relaxed if you're a fast runner because I might not have gotten in if, if I wasn't a fast runner, but that led to all kinds of opportunities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. so it, it kind of goes with being a scientist. I mean, distance runners are a bit obsessive and you know, you have to just run a long time and, and uh, for um, what might be a reward that may or may not happen later yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to, to win. But I was very competitive and, and yeah. uh, so um, it, it was a sport where hard work pays off. And I think yeah. that's true of science too. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think I learned a lot of lessons through, through that. And also being an athlete in college, you have to be very efficient with how you mm -hmm. use your time because, I mean, you, you're taking a full course load and you've got to work out every day and all your friends are out, you know, laying on the lawn in the sun or mm -hmm. playing volleyball or something for fun and you're out 
working hard running and come back tired and still have to go to the library and study. So I think it taught a lot of self-discipline. And, uh, and, and I love just the camaraderie of that. Right. And that's something that the lab also does for you, right? That you have this group of people that you work with every yeah, day. That are almost family because uh, yeah, of the closeness yeah. and the and, intensity and, of it, yeah, yeah, the yeah, engagement. And, uh, yeah, yeah and, and the graduate students and postdocs, are, they're putting their career in your hands, you know, and you got to, um, you know, look out for them. And, right. And, uh, so, so I didn't mention that before, but I came to the United States on a track and field scholarship. Oh, really? Brought the well, same kind of thing. And I also believe... Uh, that there's this sort of obsessional aspect to folks in the sciences. And you find, you find out when you dig a little deeply that they've run track and field at a high level, or they've played a musical instrument at a high level, mm -hmm. or they're a very fine artist as well. And there's a little bit of yeah. the manic. Musicians are great to, to work in the lab because they do the same thing over and over and practice and practice. And exactly. Yeah. And, that's the, yeah. that, that's exa and, the, and the delayed gratification, the part where you need yeah. to stay applied yeah. to something for hours and hours and hours with very yeah. little return. But, yeah. the, but the long-term yeah. goal, yeah, yeah, very good. Yeah. You have three children, mm -hmm. and I, I was I, fascinated by this you know, some more from a human interest perspective because, you know, they've grown up in a household where their dad is a very, very prominent science, scientist. Are any of them following in your footsteps, or are they steering clear um, of it? One of them is. I mean, mostly they have remained, it's good to be kind of oblivious to exactly everything we're doing. And I mean, you're just their dad. What's the, what's right. the difference yeah. as scientists? So, I have with my three children. The oldest um, is a computer science engineering guy, and and of course works in the Bay Area and, and does very well in that. My older daughter is in grad school at Berkeley in immunology, virology, and she was the one who paid the most attention, especially during the early rabies days. And I gave talks at her school about rabies virus stuff, and maybe that influenced her interest in in virology and, and diseases. So she studies um, childhood malaria. Um, in a lab at UC San Francisco and through a graduate program at Berkeley. And then my youngest daughter is applying to law school this year and working in the public defender's office in Oakland. So um, they're all doing so great it, things, very proud career. of all of them. Yeah. So what about um, you know, work-life balance? And all, through the years when you're raising children, I think people are often you know, think about mm -hmm. scientists and the, the sh like quantity of hours mm -hmm. that have to be put in the lab, and I think it's, it's a reality yeah, yeah. Of, the, of the world we well, live and in. Well, and especially in the earlier years, I spent a lot more time in the lab, mm -hmm. and I'm very fortunate that my wife was very supportive of that. And I also traveled more than I do now um, at, at times, and, you know, that's really helpful to have a partner who helps you to, to manage all that and, and tolerates it to a right, certain right. De degree too, because there were times when we did all night experiments and, and, and things. I do think you, you have to be able to turn it off at times too. Right. And when you're, when you're done at the end of the day, um, to be able to come home, and that was when the kids were younger, one of my favorite things was it was time to go home, give everybody a bath and read. Yeah. And I would read them books. And, uh, and what, about, what about some advice? So a young graduate student thinking about life as a scientist today, 2019, going forward, the challenges of it, the young graduate student thinking about having a family mm -hmm. uh, in, in this field yeah. and in this business. Do you have any, any yeah. pearls of wisdom? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing that's not common sense. You have to make the choice that works for you. I mean, when I was in grad school, I was very focused. I probably was in the lab. 12 to 16 hours a day, and didn't really have a, very, a, a lot of uh, a lot of balance, um, uh, but didn't have any kids yet either, and uh, um, 
So, and, and I consciously, my wife and I discussed that we should wait till I'm a postdoc to have, have our first kid. But then we, the, our first kid, our son was born while I was a, a postdoc and that worked out just fine. Mm -hmm. um, everything's hard. There, no matter where you do it, there's no easy time. And, uh, but, uh, but if you believe in what you're doing mm -hmm. and you, you like it, it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's not hard in the sense that um, you know, you're, you're enjoying what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Is there um, a difference for, for youngsters these days, you know, when, when maybe you and I were coming up through the system, you became an expert in a very specific domain and that, and today we really try, you really have to start to work across disciplines. And yeah, it, it, it's harder for sure. Um, and in neuroscience now in particular, because what you could possibly do with the range of tools that has emerged, the expectation for a high-profile paper is that it's going to have a little bit of everything. And how could you do all that? So I, I think it becomes more important to work as a team mm -hmm. and to have different people in the group that, you know, you see more co-first author or even three co, you know, all gave the, right. the same amount of effort to the paper going, going on. Um, but it's also good to learn from the other people that you're working with because eventually you do need to go start your own lab and it's good to have learned multiple skills and bring that and to be able to train the people that are coming in. Well, can I lean so, on that? You know, eventually you have to go start your own lab. Are, are our models yeah, you, correct you get today? To. You don't have to. You right, get, yeah. You, you, so, you get the opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> but are, are we doing... Are, is our, so, so would it be fair, I mean, you, put, you can push back on this, would it be fair to say that the way we do business today with a, you know, a new investigator gets a, 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 you know, a job in a lab at a university, opens up their lab and starts, uh, it hasn't changed much yeah. over the last 40 or 50 years. This is, we still operate under the same basic model. Is, the, is that the right way to do science these days? If you were shaking it up, would you, would you approach it in a different way? Perhaps. I, I think it probably depends on the kinds of institution and other, I mean, a lot of institutions have a really important emphasis on teaching as well and, and other things that, that need to be done. Um, a really good model of doing it a different way is the Allen Brain Institute, right? And they have a, a very different structure where they bring in people. They actually pay people at postdoc level a lot more than our postdocs get paid. We should pay our postdocs a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, that's dictated largely by the by government levels that are right. set. So, um, uh, but um, so what's but the model the, there for the, our Much audience? more a team kind of, of right. science. And so they do have people who are more specialized and have careers that are doing science. Um, and some of those people move through the ranks and become the pe people who are more interested in asking big questions and directing programs. Other people would rather stay in what they're doing, but they can get paid a good wage, I mean, often better than what some starting assistant professors do, and have a career in that As a, a that career program. scientist as yeah. part of an Working as somebody who does bioinformatics or somebody right. who does um, slice physiology or does uh, calcium imaging in vivo mm -hmm. or does electron microscopy and all these different, different things. Um, because that's one of the real inefficiencies in the way the things work now is that I have somebody who comes as a postdoc and just as they get really good at what they're doing, they leave and I have to replace them with somebody else that's going to come in and start over. All and, that training. and we do often have sort of career um, research assistants who stay in the lab, but um, the system is much more designed to have 
funding for postdocs and grad students through fellowships and different kind of things. So we rely on, on that labor, I think, more than we should. Right. Um, there are other models in other countries where they give you a budget and say, hey, this is for technicians, and then here's the budget for, for these people. But right. here, here it works differently. So um, I, I think that, you know, it, it's kind of like how, how things are in, in the U.S. It's not the perfect system, but it works well, and works we make, well. make yeah. do, do well with it. You could design a better system, but then if you try to impose things, then you have unintended consequences yeah. at times, too. So, yeah. so, so look into the future. Now, you, you mentioned you know, specific cell type targeting and genetic manipulation of specific cell types as ways to get after disease. But looking out 10 years, 15 years from now, what, what's on the horizon? What do you see as yeah. the, the really exciting areas that we should be? Yeah. Well, well, in terms of targeting cell types, the, I think that the field is just now in the last, it's probably been in the last year, but what I'm seeing in publications, and there's more and more of a trend to people to publish preprints on BioArchive. And just in the last six months, um, there have been um, what people call enhancers, cell type specific regulatory elements in the genome that are responsible for the normal mechanisms that give rise to the differences between cell types. Cell types are different, um, not because they have different genes in them. They all have the same genetic material, but it's which genes get turned on and which genes turned off during development and the specification of a cell to a type. And there are marks of that in the genome, um, in, uh, and there are analyses that can be done called epigenetic analysis that can look at those marks in the genome and find out where are these elements that might be enhancer elements in the genome that might be responsible for the difference between this cell and this cell and this cell. And um, there are some of these publications now that are coming out showing that you can use that analysis to predict enhancers. You can put them in a viral vector, the same viruses that are used now for gene therapy in humans. And um, you can then, uh, in fact, even human tissue, in one case from the Allen Institute where they have tissue from people that are having uh, tumor uh, surgery or epilepsy surgeries, and those patients donate some of their brain that can then be cultured, and you can test those viruses, and they've shown that you can get the, the targeting to the cell type that was intended based on their epigenetic analysis mm -hmm. of these, these marks. And I think that in the next just couple years, there's gonna be a huge explosion in our ability to target gene expression to cell types, not just in mice where we have to genetically engineer the genome of the mouse, but where we can go into any species, including humans, and target a, a cell type for therapeutic pur purposes. And, uh, a great future, and it's, it's on the horizon here. It's not a, yeah, it's not a yeah. million miles away at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think it's overhyped at all. Yeah. Now, now the, how long is it going to be until you actually do gene therapy in a human? You're going to have to have, that, that would require cell type targeting. Um, there will probably be types of diseases that are more tractable and sure. the, the cost-benefit um, kind of equations where, you know, if maybe somebody who has epilepsy, um, the treatment now is to remove that part of the brain. So there is not a huge cost to saying, well, we have a potential we gene therapy. First before we, we can take it out. Yeah, we yeah. can do something where we would express a gene, a transgene, only in a cell type that would then, if you activated that cell type, would suppress the activity. And then if you detected a seizure coming, you could maybe do that. Or if you um, 
had a drug, the, the transgene is affected by a drug that the person takes that's targeted only to those cells rather than the drug that would have all kinds of side effects right. for the epilepsy drug somebody might be taking now, you've now targeted it to just that part of the brain where they have the epileptic focus and you can just regulate with the dose of this drug mm -hmm. which um, doesn't have any side effects because there are no receptors for it in the brain. So that's something that um, you could imagine coming, coming along and you know you start small with something that's cost benefit is big because if it doesn't work or something goes wrong you're just going to cut that tissue out anyway right. um, but then building to, to things that are mm -hmm. you know more sophisticated over the years I think the basic research is necessary to identify how the normal circuit mechanisms work and then to be able to say there is a target there's a, a treatment that you might try and there's going to have to be uh, translation across species. You're not going to go straight from mice to humans. Um, it's very clear now that you can find homologous cell types, 100 cell types in the cerebral cortex of people and mice, and you can find nearly all of them are homologous. But the genes that are expressed in the primate cell types in monkeys and, and uh, chimps and humans, that's highly conserved, but it's different in mice. Right. So the way we're going to target those cell types and uh, and the genes and how they relate to genetic disorders right. and genetic prevalence for disorders is going to be different between mice and monkeys. Yeah. You need a transitional species to, to work with to, to do that. So we're, we're getting close on our time. I wanted to ask you, when at the end of the day, I assume these days you're, you're not running cross-country to no. wind down. <laughs> how, do you, how do you switch off? What's, what's, your, what's your thing? Well, the last few months not haven't been as as diligent, but I do still try to try to run uh, a few okay. days a week. Yeah, go, yeah. go for a five or six mile run. I like going hiking. I like going fishing. Yeah. Um, do you find like, like I do uh, when you're running that there's a clarity? It's a really good time to think about science, actually. In, mm -hmm. a, in a in a usually thing. when you're not thinking about it. Yeah. 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 That, that happens sometimes. You just. Yeah, have a yeah. chance to go. I often wonder about the neurotransmitter milieu that allows for that kind of clarity when, it, when you're on a nice, no, they're not all nice. Sometimes yeah. it's just a yeah. slog, but uh, when the mind clears and the run and, and all the rest of the world falls away, sometimes I have some yeah. of my best thoughts about experiments. And, yeah. yeah. And it's such a pleasure to have you here in yeah. Rochester. Thank I you. Really I really appreciate you coming it. in. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you.